You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. All right. Well, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, my name is Lucas, and uh, we are starting uh, our new sermon series on prayer. And if you guys have been uh, with us at, uh, at Summit for any length of time, uh, you'll know that we, we generally like to stick to a verse, right? So we'll, we'll get a chunk of text or a whole book of the Bible, and we'll just, we're just glued to that, and we go verse by verse or chapter by chapter, and, uh, and we go through that text. But, uh, but occasionally, uh, we'll do what's called topical sermon series, uh, which is exactly what this is. So we, uh, we have a topic, and then we approach the scriptures with the topic, and then we ask the scriptures, what does the scripture have to say about this topic? And that's what we're going to be doing uh, through this sermon series. So uh, and kind of the benefit of this is that we do have the freedom to jump around throughout the scriptures uh, and see what, uh, what the scriptures have to say about, uh, about this topic. But uh, before we dig in, and we are going to be in the Lord's Prayer, uh, it's hard to start a sermon series without starting off with the Lord's Prayer. Um, but before we do that, I would like to just kind of share our heart behind doing this. Uh, and what is it that we actually want to accomplish uh, or why we're doing this? Uh, last year, Ovi and I, uh, we really just, it, it was kind of heavy on our hearts and we just felt really convicted uh, about uh, really prioritizing here at, at Summit, um, just making this church uh, a praying church. And more than anything, uh, we want everyone here and any visitors or anyone else that might come to recognize this church as a praying church. Uh, some churches uh, you might go to and you just, you remember that church as like, man, that church had awesome music, or that pastor was a great orator, or he told really funny jokes. Whatever you might remember a church for, uh, we want this church to always be known and remembered as a praying church. There's a lot of different reasons for that, uh, but uh, one of the main reasons for this uh, and why uh, we feel so motivated and convicted uh, for this church to be a praying church uh, is because prayer really is the, it's the, it's the engine uh, or the motivator uh, for our ministry. When I say our ministry, I don't mean Ovi and me, I mean our collective ministry. We've all been given the work of reconciliation uh, that Christ has given to us. We all have a ministry, uh, and that's to reach the lost, proclaim the gospel, and live a life worthy of the call of Christ. And that is our ministry, and prayer motivates that ministry. Uh, it gives it its effectiveness. It gives it its power and its thrust. And without prayer, uh, that ministry largely falls flat and is found ineffective. And we're going to talk about why that might be. Um, but, uh, but we want more than anything for that not to be a problem here. And it doesn't necessarily mean that like, just because we pray, our church is going to get bigger. That's, that's completely the opposite perspective. Um, we'll talk about this, is that prayer is, not this, uh, uh, prayer is not the coin that you put into the vending machine of God, and then you select your, uh, your, your option, and then God dispenses whatever you asked for, Right? Again, we're not, uh, we're not wanting uh, prayer, this church to be a praying church so that we can grow in numbers. Again, this is not uh, the coin that we're putting into the vending machine. But we want prayer to be the motivation for everything that we do here at Summit. 
so that we can come to know God more fully as a community and we are more effective in doing what he has asked us to do. Now, with that being said, uh, I want to make very clear a, uh, a disclaimer. Because we want this to be uh, kind of our position at Summit, we want prayer, we want Summit to be a praying church, this does not mean or this is not an indictment against the church uh, indicating that we are not a praying church. Um, more so, what this is, is that this should be kind of a call to action to keep going. We're on the right track and we're doing really well in this area. But we can't get uh, relaxed or lazy in this area, but this is more of an encouragement, this series. Uh, I went to a, uh, a conference uh, this summer and, uh, and it was all about prayer. The whole conference was basically just educating pastors and church planters on how you can get your church to be a praying church. And a lot of the metrics that they were using to, well, how do you know if your church is a praying church? Or how do you know that you're actually progressing in the right area? A lot of those things or indications or highlights uh, were things that Summit's already doing. Uh, and I'll be honest, a lot of the pastors and church planners I was interacting with, uh, they were asking us, like, well, how's Summit doing? And I'm like, we're, we're hitting all these, Right. And they were really jealous of us, of this little church plant. All these big, huge churches were just like, man, how do you do it? And, and a lot of these metrics were, were uh, like praying, uh, having dedicated prayer times before, like outside of normal church service, uh, which is what we do before the service starts. We pray uh, all together. Um, another metric is, uh, is just finding people, just randomly praying for each other and with each other before and after service, which is pretty common here at Summit. Um, we, uh, we often take time to not uh, worship God with music, but we will take time to worship God with corporate prayer. And again, that's something that, uh, yeah, you, you guys should be uh, really working toward this, and it was something that we were already doing. So if anything else, I want to encourage you that at least from my perspective and from all metrics, uh, this is a praying church. We are a praying church and we take prayer very seriously. And in fact, it's even one of our core values where it's prayer is a mindset. So if anything else, I just want to communicate to you guys that uh, this is not an indictment toward you uh, or any of us, uh, but more so this is an encouragement to keep going. We're doing this right, and we're doing things right, but we can still always improve and, uh, and also to not lose sight of what we're trying to accomplish. Also, just uh, another explanation of what this series is. There's a lot of different ways to pray. Uh, there's prayers of intercession. There's prayers of supplication, uh, petition. Uh, there's praise, praying the scriptures. There's a lot of different ways that we could do this. Um, and uh, we'll hit on some of those uh, in this series. But what this series mostly is, is going to be looking at what prayer isn't, but not just leaving you with like, it's not this, but also explaining what is prayer. So if prayer isn't this, then what is it? And so we're going to be going through a lot of uh, maybe common misconceptions about prayer um, and how we often misunderstand what God is calling us to do in prayer. And so uh, we, uh, but we are going to go through in, uh, in D groups uh, a lot of those things that you guys, uh, that I, I just mentioned, where it's uh, prayer of supplication or prayer of petition. Um, so please come to D group uh, that is going to heavily supplement uh, what we're doing here on Sunday morning. 
So as I mentioned, uh, it's hard to do a sermon series without uh, opening up with the Lord's Prayer. This is the blueprint for how Christ's disciples are to pray. Uh, he wants us to pray in this way. And, uh, and so that's where we're going to be. So let's start in Matthew 6, 5 through 15. And, uh, and I'll just uh, read this. I need to start my timer so I don't go over. All right. And Jesus says, And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they will be seen by people. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But as for you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use thoughtless repetitions as Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive other people for their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, then your Father will not forgive your offenses. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I just thank you for, uh, for this opportunity for all of us to get together and look at your word and explore uh, the revelation that you've given to us um, with an effort to understand how you want us to pray. I ask that you open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us today. And I ask that you just, um, you vivify our broken hearts uh, with your spirit and that you make us alive and um, so that we can know what it is that you are calling us to do. And we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So there, uh, I have three points for us today, three points that I want us to focus on in the Lord's Prayer. Um, this isn't to say that there's only three points. Um, there's probably six different ways to preach this. So uh, there's a lot more that, uh, that is to be unpacked uh, in, this, uh, in this very short prayer, uh, in a very simple prayer. But there's three things I want us to know and three things that I think uh, Jesus is asking his disciples to understand about prayer. First one is that prayer is communion with God. At its core, this is what prayer is, is it's communion with God. But also Jesus makes it very clear that prayer is not directing God. Uh, and then lastly, prayer is a reminder to us of who God is and who we are. So again, prayer is communion with God. It is not directing God. And prayer is a reminder of who God is and who we are. So in Matthew 6, 5 through 6, uh, we see this idea of communion with God made very clear. And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they will be seen by people. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. Now, this word hypocrite, 
uh, at least in the Greek, is uh, it, was, it was commonly used to uh, just describe actors. Uh, so it maybe didn't have as much of a negative connotation as it would now today. Uh, but a hypocrite or hypocritas was just simply uh, someone that would be in the theater and they would put on a mask and pretend to be someone that they're not. Uh, very similar to modern actors today. Um, so uh, we pay these individuals uh, by going to the movie theaters or watching their performance, uh, whatever, on streaming sites or whatever it may be so that we can watch them pretend to be something that they're not. That very much is the same exact thing as what a hypocrite does, uh, is just someone that's acting. Are they actually this way? It doesn't matter. Maybe they are, maybe they're not, but that's completely irrelevant. Because the goal of an actor, the whole reason why they're performing, the whole reason why they're acting is to be seen. No effective actor ever acted in private and then never showed their acting skills to anyone else. That's not an actor anymore. Uh, maybe it's just someone that's delusional, right? But a hypocrite is very much someone that, that desires to be seen. And so in their desire to be seen, they actually go to people because they're acting for people. And they're pretending or they're acting or they're putting on a show so that they can be seen by other people and they seek them out. They go to the synagogues. They go to the street corners. Why? Because that's where the people are. And so they go there and they pray and they pray openly so that they can just be seen. And that's the reward. The motivation is to be seen and they got it. And that's it. And that's what Christ is making very clear here is if your motivation is just to be seen, good for you, I suppose you got your reward. But then he goes on and says, um, uh, truly I say to you, they have the reward in full, but as for you, the disciples, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, often this can be misunderstood as, okay, so I just need to pray in secret and then uh, God is more maybe likely to give me what I've asked for. And again, we have to get rid of this presupposition or this understanding that, it, that prayer is some kind of formula that if we pray in the right way, then God is going to give us what we've asked. This is not some kind of formula where it's, okay, I just need to have a secret prayer life and then God is more likely to do what I've asked. But instead, the reward that is given to us is communion with the Father. Because again, he's contrasting the hypocrites to the disciples. Their reward is being seen by other people, but the reward of the disciples is being seen by God. The hypocrites, they go to the people because that's what they're looking for. And the disciples, instead, they go to the secret places because that's where God is. It says, pray to your father who is in secret. So why are the disciples going to the inner room and praying in secret? Because that's where the father is. The hypocrites, they seek out people. They seek out attention. They seek out their reward. And so do the disciples. His disciples are intended to seek out their reward, seek out the one who sees them, seek out the one in secret. And we seek him out in secret. And this is the reward. 
is fellowship and communion with the Father. It's communing with the Father is what accomplishes so much in prayer. It's what makes prayer effective. Prayer is communion with the Father, and this is the reward. And if it's not reward enough, uh, hang in there because we're, we're going to go through how this actually affects uh, a reward in our lives. Now, communion is, uh, or communication or relationship, this is a reciprocal uh, a- aspect. Our relationship is going to be reciprocal. We're going to, uh, if you've ever had any meaningful relationship, you know that you want to understand the intentions and the heart and the mind of the person that you're in communion with. But same with you, you want to share your heart and your mind and your intentions with the people that you care about. That doesn't necessarily mean that you need other people to fix you, right? Husbands have a hard time recognizing that, right? When wives share just their hearts and their intentions and their struggles, husbands immediately want to fix it. But that's not always the case, right? Sometimes you just need to share what's on your heart. And this is very much the same way with what Christ is laying out in this communion with the Father, As we go to the Father, and what we're doing is we're seeking to understand the heart and the mind of our Lord and our Savior, but we're also taking this time to share our hearts and our minds and our intentions and our struggles with him as well. Matthew uh, 6, 9 through 13, uh, it uh, makes this very clear. Jesus says, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see how this Lord's Prayer is actually divided up into three different sections or three different petitions. The first three is that uh, Christ is is guiding his disciples to recognize that the first three uh, asks or petitions are asking God to do the things that he's going to do. And again, in a relationship, we want to resonate or we want to know the mind and the intentions and the heart of the person that we're communing with and the person that we're in relationship with. And we see this very clearly. We want to know the mind of God. We want to know the heart of God. What is he doing? Why is he doing it? And we want to help him do it. And yet we also are looking at ourselves and offering ourselves to God. This is what we need. This is what we want. This is what we're looking for. And so in this relationship, we're, we're having both sides where we're seeking the mind of God. We're seeking the heart of God and what he has for us, and what he's executing in this world. But we're also giving ourselves to him, and what we desire, and what we want. However, we often, it's very easy for us to look at this, and say, okay, we're asking God for what we want, and so he should be at least somewhat concerned about us, right? And that is very much true. If we're concerned on what God wants, then he should also equally be concerned with what we want. And that may be true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that what you want is good or that it fits his plan. And so why is it that we're actually giving him our hearts, our our minds and our attentions uh, and our concerns if it doesn't necessarily change anything that he's going to do? Now, this is, uh, this is a lot bigger of a topic, 
But what I want us to focus on, and this is our second point, what I want us to focus on here is that prayer is not directing God. Prayer is not directing God. Now, I'm going to make this very clear now and also a little bit later. That doesn't mean that prayer doesn't do anything. Absolutely does not mean that prayer does nothing. It doesn't mean that prayer is ineffective. And it doesn't mean that prayer doesn't, doesn't uh, 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 impact our lives or the lives of those around us. Christ is very clear that we should pray for the sick. We should lay hands on the sick. Uh, we, should, uh, we should pray for the lost. We should pray for our government. We should pray for other people uh, constantly without ceasing. We should be praying, and we should be praying for other people, and we should be praying for change, and we should be cha- praying uh, for the kingdom. However, uh, and we'll find in Matthew 6, 5 through 15, our posture matters so much. It says, and when you pray, or and when you are praying, do not use thoughtless repetitions as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard with their many words. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So there was, a, there was a pretty common practice within uh, first century pagan uh, prayer rituals is that they would just pray the same thing over and over and over and over and over uh, in order to kind of uh, coerce the gods or the spirits to act benevolent, benevolently on their behalf. Uh, often what they would do is, uh, is certain conjurers or sorcerers or, or, or uh, magicians, they would come up with certain uh, series of words or a phrase to say over and over. Uh, this phrase is found to be effective, so say this over, and, uh, and then gods, the gods will look favorably upon you. Or sometimes it would just be utterances. It wouldn't actually be even words. Uh, if you say this, this letter sequence enough times, the gods will listen to you. Or sometimes it was just a, a sequence of words that were just completely incoherent, but they found that these sequence of words coerce the gods. And that's what Jesus is directly saying is don't, don't do that. The repetition doesn't get, uh, doesn't get God to hear you, which is a bit ironic because historically the Lord's Prayer has been said on repeat over and over mindlessly just to get God to hear you. But what, what he's calling us to do is, is don't concern yourself with saying it over and over and over or making sure that it's the right combination of words uh, or often I hear, I don't know how to pray, or if I pray out loud, people are just going to judge me because I don't pray that well. Doesn't matter. Jesus said right here, it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter how, like, how many times you say it. It doesn't matter the words that you're using. What matters is communion with God. But the biggest problem with the Gentiles is their posture. They're approaching their deities with a posture of working for me. Again, it's this vending machine idea where it's, okay, I just pray the certain way, and that's the coin. Prayer is the coin. I'll put it in the vending machine, and then I just get to punch in what I want. And then probably the gods are going to dispense what I need. Or perhaps it gets caught in the vending machine. And so this, this is the issue that Christ is, is addressing, is that he doesn't want his disciples to think that they're coercing God into doing anything. You do not pray so that you can direct God's actions. And he even says, your father already knows what you need before you prayed it. 
And again, we're left with, then why pray at all? God already knows, so what's the point? Why bother at all? Now, what's behind that question is this uh, almost narcissistic or prideful assumption that the only reason why I would pray is to get something out of God. Again, what I'm not saying is that prayer doesn't do anything. Prayer does a lot. But let's just go with me for a moment. What if prayer did absolutely nothing? Would we still be motivated to commune with God? And I think this is kind of the gut check that's, that's being presented here, is that if prayer does not direct God, then why pray at all? If that is our natural inclination, then we have to understand that we have an incorrect understanding of what prayer is. Prayer is not getting something out of God. It is communion with God. It is spending time with him. It is sharing our hearts and our minds with him, and it is exploring and being concerned with what God is concerned with. It is this relationship. And Jesus goes on and says, uh, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you ask. Instead, pray in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, these three things are pretty odd things to pray about. Um, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. These are things that God's going to do anyways. Again, why are we praying them? God's going to do it. Um, And uh, in fact, I'd like us to go to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, uh, and again, this is a whole other sermon. Uh, There's so many deep connections with the, uh, the Lord's Prayer and Ezekiel 36. But Ezekiel 36, uh, God says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, This is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake, house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I show myself holy among you in their sight. Now, this idea is just over and over and over in Ezekiel 36. I just picked one of the passages where he talks about he's going to vindicate his holy name. He's going to hallow his name. He's going to sanctify his name. This is all God. When we see hallowed be your name, yes, we should be sanctifying his name, but he's going to do it. In fact, when we hallow his name, he's doing it in us. So why are we praying, hallowed be your name? He's going to do it anyways. Or your kingdom come. This is not a new idea. He doesn't need us to pray this in order for him to do it. Or God's just like twiddling his thumbs up in heaven, just waiting for us to pray that the kingdom come. And then he's like, oh, all right, great. I was waiting for you to ask. But even in Matthew, we see the idea that the kingdom had already come prior to uh, this uh, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 3, 1 through 2, John the Baptist is speaking, and it says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's in our midst. It's under your nose. It's now. So John the Baptist seemed to think that the kingdom had already come. 
at least to some effect. Matthew 4, 17, it says, and from that time, so John the Baptist was arrested, and then it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here, it's now, it's in your midst, it's near. So both Jesus and John the Baptist seemed to think that the kingdom had already come. Sure, maybe it hadn't come in its fullness, but it had already come. And now in chapter 6, Jesus is telling his disciples to pray that the kingdom comes. Well, which is it, Jesus? Has the kingdom come or is it still coming or should we pray that it's going to come? The answer is yes. So this, without getting too lost in the theology of it, uh, the kingdom is very much here. It's now. It's in our midst. It's, it was there in the person of Jesus Christ, and it's now in the person uh, of the Holy Spirit indwelling all of us, sanctifying his, his people. But it's still coming in this new creation where we get new resurrected bodies on a new heaven and a new earth, and all things are made perfect. We are in perfect harmony with our Lord, we're in perfect relationship with each other, and we're in perfect harmony with nature around us. So the kingdom is now, and it was then, and it is coming. So why are we praying that it's going to come? God is going to do it, and in fact, he already has. And on and on, we can go through every single one of these points. Somewhere else in the Old Testament, prior to Jesus saying this, God says he will give us our daily bread. He will deliver us. He will forgive us as we forgive other people. This isn't, none of this is, old, uh, is new information. And none of this is ever directed at uh, humans have to initiate this or bring this about. All of these things are things that God is going to do. So Christ is asking us to just ask God to do the things that he's going to do anyways? Yes. That's exactly what he's asking us to do. But why? What would that change if it doesn't change God's mind? He's going to do it anyways. Why are we doing these things? And this gets into this, uh, this very important idea that uh, we are not directing God, but that does not mean that we don't get to participate in what he's doing. He will bring about his kingdom. He will sanctify his name. He will provide us our daily bread. He will deliver us from evil. But that doesn't mean that we don't participate in that with him. What prayer is doing is that while we commune with God, we do the things of God while he's doing it in us and through us. It's this uh, he and us while we're in him idea. I, uh, I have this uh, video of, uh, of Gabe, um, and uh, maybe we could just watch it real quick. Uh, but uh, Emily sent me this, uh, this video, and uh, I think it really cap- kind of captures the idea uh, pretty accurately. <laughs> so this, uh, she sent this to me, and I immediately um, <laughs> thought that that was a sermon illustration. Because this is exactly... <laughs> This is exactly what's happening in prayer, right? Gabe always wants to be with mom, constantly. And, uh, and he always wants to, uh, whenever mom's cooking breakfast, he wants to help her. He wants to be a part of it, right? Uh, and he's sitting on the counter, and don't worry, he's safe. Okay, you don't have to, okay. But 
<laughs> he's sitting on the counter and he wants to help. He wants to participate. But it's an awful idea to help him, to have him whisk the eggs for breakfast. It's a terrible idea. But Emily allowed him to do it anyways, but how did she do it? She put her hand over his hand and whisked the eggs. And Gabe was so pumped about this. This is very much the idea of what we're doing in prayer. Is prayer effective? Absolutely. But effective in what? In participating in what God is doing. Not in what we're doing. Not in our direction. Not in our intentions or our goals or vision for the future. What we're participating in is what God is already doing and what he's going to do. And so prayer is massively effective in executing this in that we, while we're communing with God and we're sharing our hearts and our intentions with God and we're, we're understanding what he is revealing to us and we know his heart and intention, we actually get to participate in all the things that he's already enacting and that he's already doing. This is why we can say with confidence that we should pray for the sick. We should pray for the lost. We should pray for our government and we should pray for everyone around us and we should pray for each other. And so the last point that we see and the last petition uh, that we see on this side of the Lord's Prayer, it asks or we're asking God to let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Essentially what this petition is is that we're asking God to be sovereign. And you see how, of course, God is sovereign, but what this is doing, what this does to us and in our hearts is that it draws our 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 attentions, and our mind toward the fact of God is sovereign. This reminds us of who God is. And this leads us to the last three petitions in the Lord's Prayer, and those last three are concerning us. The last three petitions is, give us our daily bread, forgive us sins as or forgive our sins as we have forgiven others and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil and hopefully you can see this this uh this is pretty obvious and we'll, we'll spend more time talking about this uh in another sermon later on in the series but you see how these petitions are not primarily concerned with you as an individual but you see how these are communal petitions Give us our daily bread. Forgive our sins. Do not lead us into temptation. You see how these, these prayers, they concern all of us and not just the individual. But again, we'll talk about this a little bit later. But you see how these three petitions, uh, they remind us of who we are. And the first three petitions were concerned with reminding or drawing our hearts or our attentions to who God is. And then these three are reminding us or showing us who we are. Give us our daily bread. You see, because we are the ones that are dependent. We are needy. We are not God. We are not sovereign. But instead, we are the ones that are dependent and our problems become uh, or our problems come when we start realizing or, or thinking that we are the ones that actually do control or sustain ourselves. 
We think we are the ones that actually work our jobs and earn money and go out and buy our bread, but it is God who sustains us and gives us life. The second petition, it reminds us uh, that we can't actually produce uh, good things. The second petition, it says, forgive our sins as we have forgiven others. Or another way to translate this, I believe the King James translates it, uh, for, uh, forgive our sins as we're forgiving others. It's almost as if it's, uh, it's contemporaneous with each other. Uh, as we're forgiving other people, then God, uh, we're asking God to forgive us as well uh, at the same time. We're in the process of forgiving others. But this, uh, this is a tough one, isn't it? Often we struggle with forgiving other people. And this reminds us that we need help forgiving other people. If our forgiveness from God is contingent or dependent upon our ability to perfectly forgive other people, you see how this reminds us that we are so incapable of producing perfect relationships. It really is impossible for us to actually affect our own salvation, to bring about our salvation or our forgiveness. And so when we ask God to please forgive us as we're forgiving others, this reminds us that we need help in this process. And the last petition, it says, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see how this last petition, it also reminds us that we are so prone toward evil. And it's not always that we are uh, just these helpless victims that, uh, that we just kind of stumble up upon evil. But you see how this petition is actually divided into two different things. It's do not lead us into temptation. Uh, so don't lead us so, or, or lead us or guide our paths so that we do not fall into temptation or more evil. But then it also says, but deliver us instead, deliver us from evil. This petition assumes that we are already in evil, doesn't it? And so this last petition, it reminds us that we are prone to evil. We are in evil and we need deliverance. We need to be guided away from further temptation in the future. And so this reminds us that we are in evil. We are victims of evil, that is true, but we are also perpetrators of evil, aren't we? It's in our nature, it's who we are, in our natural state. We are prone to toward evil. Now, I'd like to expose you uh, to uh, a certain, it's called a, uh, well, it's a literary device. It's a Hebrew literary device, and this isn't like the only one, um, but there are a lot of different literary devices, but this is one known as chiasm or a chiastic structure. And it's just a way in which uh, kind of Hebrew literature is written from time to time. And I kind of put a visual representation up here on the screen so that you can see it. Uh, but it's that the points are kind of mirroring each other. So, for example, the first point mirrors the last point, and the second point mirrors the second to last point. And then the third point mirrors the, well, you get the picture. And, uh, and again, it's not always in threes. Sometimes the chiasm, it goes to six or it goes to, to five. Um, 
and then the middle point or the odd point is kind of like the main point. But you see here in chiasm, a lot of times, and again, not all the time, but a lot of times you do see uh, the, the middle two points are actually the main thrust of the argument. Wisdom literature in, uh, in the Old Testament is often written in this way. And this is often the reason why uh, a lot of times we can kind of miss the main point uh, in wisdom literature or, uh, or in some Hebrew structures, is, uh, is that we think very linear. We think uh, very similar to how Paul maybe makes an argument, like in the book of Romans, for example, as he builds up to an argument and then he gives us the main point right at the end. Uh, but a lot of times, uh, the main point could be found in the middle, as we see here in chiasm. And it's very interesting when you look at the Lord's Prayer through the lens of chiasm, and you actually start seeing these points. There's three petitions that we make toward God about God, and then there's three petitions that we make to God about us. And as we're praying and we're reminding ourselves of who God is, and we're also reminding ourselves of who, uh, who we are, uh, we, see, we start seeing a, a little bit of a chiastic structure uh, or mirroring points. And so, for example, uh, the first petition is that we ask God to hallow or sanctify his own name. Hallowed be your name. And you see this mirrored in the last petition, uh, which is, uh, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see how what we're asking God is to sanctify his own name, make himself holy, and then where do we end up on the mirroring point? We are not holy. In fact, we are prone toward evil. In fact, we need help to become holy. You see these mirroring points. The second point, we ask God, we petition God, your kingdom come. And the second to last point, the mirroring point, is to forgive us our debts as we are forgiving our debtors. You see how this is what the kingdom of God looks like, isn't it? The kingdom of God is a kingdom in which his people are constantly caring and, uh, and forgiving other people. What his kingdom looks like is, uh, is, is full of creatures and, uh, and image bearers and, uh, and, and his people forgiving others and caring for others, loving his neighbor. You see how these points are mirroring, they're, they're reflecting each other. Your kingdom come and we can actually participate in this kingdom by forgiving other people in the same way that we have been forgiven. And then the two middle points are very easily identified and mirrored with each other, which is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is sovereign. And then our first petition concerning us is to give us our daily bread because we are not sovereign. We are dependent. We are needy. You see how the Lord's Prayer really is kind of built in this way where there are mirroring points. And, and if the middle two points, that is the main thrust, then what we are praying and what, it, what is accomplished in reminding us of who God is and who we are is that God is sovereign. God is the one that brings his kingdom. God is the one that hallows his name. God is the one that brings about perfection. 
And then who are we? We are the ones that are not sovereign. We are dependent on him. We are the ones that cannot bring about his kingdom. We cannot bring about our, even our own kingdom. We cannot produce perfect relationships, but it is God who brings his kingdom. It is God who actually affects our forgiveness so that we can forgive others. And we are not the ones that are holy, but instead we are the ones that are prone to evil. Now, just a quick note on this. Uh, in reminding us of who we are, what I don't want to communicate to us is that we are just uh, kind of these hopelessly depraved, uh, awful people, and we should just be ashamed of ourselves all the time. Uh, that, that's not necessarily the, the point. It is, it is good for us to recognize who we are. It is good for us to recognize that we are depraved uh, and that we do have a sinful nature uh, and that we do need help and we need God to save us. This is just the gospel, and it's not something that we should shy away from. However, I want us to also recognize uh, that, um, that self-deprecating behavior or, or just hating yourself, uh, that is not true humility. Seeing yourself for who you really are, um, that, uh, that really is humility, but, uh, but hating yourself, uh, that's, uh, that's not necessarily um, humility. Uh, in fact, that can be quite prideful. Because the fact of the matter is that, that God does love you. And yes, it is true that, uh, that you don't deserve that love. He does find worth in you. He finds you valuable. He did step into your mess so that he can redeem you. So just as a quick aside, I don't want us to walk away from this side of the Lord's Prayer where we remind ourselves of who we are and we should just walk away from prayer uh, defeated and hating our sinful nature. But instead, I want us to walk away uh, from this and recognize that, yes, this is who we are, but God loves us anyways. He steps into our lives to save us and redeem us and to make us his own. And that's something that we should never forget. And that as we pray, yes, we're reminding ourselves of who God is, but also reminding ourselves that we don't measure up. We are broken, and yet he steps into our mess and he saves us. And this kind of leads us to our last point, um, or at least the last section uh, of this passage that, uh, that I don't want to leave out. Uh, it gets a little messy, and that's, uh, that's Matthew 6, 14 through 15. And Jesus says, and he ends this whole idea with, for uh, if you forgive other people for their offenses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, then your father will not forgive your offenses. Now this is particularly, uh, um, well, it gets a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? What Jesus is actually encouraging us uh, to recognize is that our forgiveness is, is conditional and it is dependent upon our ability to forgive other people. And whenever I teach this to, uh, to my high schoolers, um, the, uh, the answer is always, well, no, it doesn't work like this. And, I, and I, I kick it back to them, prove it. Jesus just said this. You can't pretend like he didn't say it. So what do we do with this passage? If you forgive other people for their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not, then your heavenly Father will not forgive your offenses. 
And I think the reality of this passage is it really does work like this. We cannot get into heaven. We cannot affect our own salvation. We cannot bring about perfection or even behave perfectly. And therefore, we cannot commune with a perfect God. I think there's no mystery here and there's nothing to hide from in this passage. This actually is the case. Is that no, you cannot get into heaven unless you forgive other people perfectly. And Jesus' disciples even, uh, they were concerned with a very similar thing. In Matthew 19, this is Jesus uh, just finished talking to the rich young ruler. Uh, he, uh, he sends him away because he couldn't give up his wealth and follow Jesus. Uh, and said, and, uh, and um, then his disciples told him, well, can anyone be saved? If this guy uh, can't get into heaven... Um, can anyone get saved? And so Matthew 19, 24 through 26, uh, Jesus says, And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, Who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Even the disciples in this situation, these disciples, they gave up everything. They gave up their business. They gave up their boats. They gave up their nets. Uh, and they gave up uh, a, a, their entire profession to follow Christ. And even they recognized, okay, I'm not rich, but surely there are some things that I haven't given up for Christ. They're not rich, but they still recognize if it's that difficult for a rich person, then I'm not going to make it either. And also, here at the end of the Lord's Prayer, uh, we're not going to be able to measure up to this. To a certain degree, there's going to be someone that we haven't forgiven perfectly. And if that is the case, then our Father will not forgive us completely. And what Jesus is saying here is that this is impossible. If you walk away from this passage feeling defeated, if you walk away from this passage feeling there's no way for me to be saved, you would be correct only if God didn't do it. And that's exactly what Christ is saying here. With people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And I'd like for us to just read Romans 8, 1 through 4, where I, be, I believe Paul really captures this idea uh, adequately. And it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
You see how, how this, this Lord's Prayer, it ends with this idea that, that we cannot live perfectly, but this is why Christ lived perfectly. He lived the perfect life that we were intended to live, and then he died the death that we were supposed to die so that when we in Christ participate and live in the Spirit, we also fulfill the law with Christ. When Jesus says that your Father will forgive you just as you have forgiven other people, we see Christ doing this perfectly on the cross, being nailed to the cross, becoming a curse for us. He forgives perfectly, not because he needs to be forgiven, but because we need to be forgiven. And so when we find ourselves in Christ, when we participate in Christ, we participate in the forgiveness that he offered his, his persecutors. And in participating in this, we also are forgiven. This is why Paul can say so confidently at the beginning, therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ. There's no caveat here. There's no caveat. There's no disclaimer that says, Oh, also you need to forgive other people. It's no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ. Why? Because Christ is the disclaimer. He is the caveat. He did forgive perfectly. And so this is why when we are in Christ, we too participate in the forgiveness that he obtained for us. And so as we pray we're reminded of this gospel truth. When we pray, we commune with God because he is our reward. This ability to approach God Almighty is what's accomplished in the death and the resurrection of Christ. When we pray, we commune with God because this is what Christ has accomplished for us. When we pray, we do not direct God. We are not the ones that are telling him what to do. We are not like the Gentiles who just repeat ourselves over and over, hoping that we can, we can coerce God into doing something that he wasn't intending to do himself. But instead, we participate in what Christ has already done in us and with us. And lastly, when we pray, it is a reminder of who God is, and he is our Savior. He is the one that stepped into our world. He is the one that affected perfection for us. He is the one that brings about his kingdom. He is the one that delivers us from evil, and he has done that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I'd like for us to just end on Ephesians 3, because I feel like this really does capture well what Christ has done for us and Paul says, when he's writing to the Ephesian church, he says, For this reason I bend my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner self, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend all uh, comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the height and the depth and that you know the love 
of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with uh, filled to all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to be far more abundant beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in church and in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I want us to recognize that what we're accomplishing in prayer and what we're doing is that we get to commune with God. And we get to remind ourselves of who we are, and that is redeemed brothers and sisters. We are redeemed creation. And that God, we remind ourselves of who God is, and that God is the one that redeems us. He is sovereign. He is the one that loves us. And he is the one that affects our salvation and perfection and his kingdom. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.